Luke 10, 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out, send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. We'll open up your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke. It'll be the same page that Chris gave you earlier, 1031. If you have a, don't have your Bible, you can get your pew Bible, the black pew Bible. If not, Luke chapter, turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to read some, some text Chris read some for us, just kind of set us up, help us with our context. We always, when we study a, 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 a scripture, we always have to know what comes before it so we can uh, understand it rightly. Look at chapter 9, verse 51 and 56. This is the message we call it, the godly Samaritan. And you'll find out here in a, in a bit why we, we call this message, the godly Samaritan. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Well, Jesus has set his face to, to, towards Jerusalem because that was the Father's will. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he has to go to Jerusalem in order to make atonement for sins. Starting in chapter 10, as Chris read for us, Jesus, he's moving towards Jerusalem. He sends his 70 disciples ahead with a warning that God's kingdom is near. And what we see in the rest of chapter 10 is there's a great sadness over those who reject this salvation, but there's also joy over those who receive it. And then we get to our teaching text in chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and Jesus is questioned by a, an expert in the law. Let's read that together. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, which is never a good idea, is it? We see it in Scripture time and time again, people putting Jesus to the test. It never ends well for them. He says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, He told a story, a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So what did the Samaritan do? He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is a very familiar parable, is it not? It's one that we all know and our children have all heard. But to understand this text completely and for it to be able to take its full effect, one needs to be familiar with the attitude of the Samaritans towards Jesus and, and his disciples and the disciples' attitude towards the, the Samaritans. What was the relationship like between Jew and Samaritan of that day? Well, we see in the New Testament that Jews and Samaritans were not altogether cordial. In fact, when the Jews wanted to insult Jesus, they did what some of you do. You call people nasty names. Right? He called them, they, he, Jesus was called a demon-possessed Samaritan. John chapter 8. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? What they're doing is they're trying to put Jesus down, make him look bad, make him feel bad. So they call him a Samaritan. See, the Samaritans were descendants of Assyrians who had been brought in after the northern kingdom was exiled in 722 B.C. So these Assyrians, they intermarried with the remaining Jews in the area and, and the offspring were called Samaritans. And they weren't Jews. They weren't altogether Gentiles, but that's how they were viewed by the Jews. They didn't think that the, the Psalms or the, the prophets should be included in the Old Testament scriptures. And they thought worship should be done in Shechem, which is about 25 miles north of Jerusalem, there at the, the bottom of Mount Gerizim. 25 miles from Jerusalem is where they worshiped, and they thought that's the place we should worship. In fact, those traveling towards Jerusalem from Judea for, for the religious festivals would oftentimes avoid going through Samaria, making a, a much longer journey. They would go out of their way to avoid Samaria altogether. And those who traveled through, as Chris read the text, they weren't always welcome. They thought that traveling to Jerusalem was a waste of time. Why go to Jerusalem when you can worship right here in Shechem with us? So three things I want, us to, I want to point out to you about today's text, I think we can learn. Number one is we can't justify ourselves. We need Christ to justify us. 
We see that in verses 25 through 29. Notice this lawyer. He's an expert in the Mosaic law, tested Jesus. And he's, he's the one who the Sanhedrin would call in when they had uh, needed clarification on the law. They would call in people like this scribe, this lawyer. But he knew the law of Moses, and he asked Jesus what to do to inherit eternal life. Another, another way of asking that same question was, how can I go to heaven? What must we do? And he's, a, he's not a, a genuine seeker, a, a genuine inquirer, is he? No, he's a pretend seeker. He didn't think for one second that this itinerant preacher from Nazareth could teach him anything. And then Jesus... He doesn't answer the question directly, but asks the lawyer a question himself. Well, what does the law say? And that's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question we should ask our friends and our spouses and those of you leading small groups. You should ask your small group members. It's a great question we should ask our children. What does the Bible say is always appropriate? And that's what Jesus is saying. What does the law say? What does their Old Testament scriptures say? The Bible and the Bible alone is our sole authority in matters of faith and practice. So we always go to the scriptures. In fact, oftentimes when when possible, someone asks us our opinion instead of stating, well, I think, if possible, in matters dealing with faith, in matters dealing with our practical daily living, if we can, we should say, well, the Bible says, because that should be our opinion. Whatever the Bible says is true should be our opinion. And it sounds really basic, I know, but it's the Bible and its authority is under constant attack, and so we need to hold firmly to it. It was one of the central issues of the Reformation. There was these solas, five solas. One of them was sola scriptura, and that means that the scriptures are the sole infallible source of authority for us. And, and that's a, a crucial dividing line between evangelical Protestants and Roman Catholics. Evangelicals would say Scripture is the sole authority, where Catholics would say otherwise, maybe tradition, maybe other writings. But Jesus answers this question with a question, and I know some people really hate that when people answer in such a way. Think about your children. Mom, can I go to Tommy's house to play? The answer, did you clean your room like I asked you? You hate that? Dad, can I have this candy? Have we had supper yet? Why do I always have to do the dishes? Why do you always have to complain so much? But this is the right question to ask. Jesus says, what does the law say? And by asking this question, what Jesus is wanting to to happen is for the law to have its full effect. What does the law say? 
what Jesus meant for the requirements of the law to seem overwhelming to this scribe. Because when the law is overwhelming, it prepares us, even us self-righteous people, to be compelled to receive the gospel of grace. For the gospel of grace contains a righteousness which is apart from the law, the righteousness which is from God, which comes through faith in Jesus And the law is good because it shows us our sin. The Galatians chapter 3 tells it, says that, that it's a tutor helping us see our need. And so the, the lawyer answers by quoting two scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. He answers, what's the law say? And the law says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the scribe knows the scriptures. What must I do to go to heaven? Jesus says, what does the law say in the the lawyer responds rightly, and Jesus affirms him for giving the right answer. He says, you've answered correctly. That comes from the Greek word orthos, which means correctly or correct belief. It's where we get our word orthodoxy. Oh, he's very orthodox in his beliefs. He's very orthodox in his thinking. He's, he's very orthodox with, in, in regard to his doctrine. Correct belief. You have answered correctly. You're very orthodox. But then Jesus adds these unsettling words, do this and you will live. So we have orthodoxy, correct belief, but orthopraxy is correct action or correct behavior. So you need correct belief, but you also have correct behavior. They go together, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And the lawyer, by answering in such a way, he's, he's defending a system, the Mosaic law, they can't save anyone because no one can keep it. In seeking to condemn Jesus, the lawyer really what he's doing is condemning himself. But the lawyer didn't see it. What's the law say? Love God. Love your neighbor. And the lawyer's, lawyer's response was such that he thought he was keeping the law. Did he love God with everything that is in him? Did he love his neighbor like he loved himself? So there's this perfection. The law gives us God's standard for our lives. Maddie, his standard for us is we love God with everything we have, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. We think about Christ and how he lived his life, how perfect and holy he was. Jesus, he was the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount in bodily form. He was complete. He was perfect. He was godly, holy, 
and righteous. Outwardly, we should murder, but inwardly, we should not be wrongly angry with anyone. The law requires not only that we don't commit adultery, but that our thought life be completely pure. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we're told. That's the standard that God has given us. James chapter 2, verse 10, tells us if we fail to keep one part of the law, we've broken the whole thing. The lawyer's response wasn't what it should have been. His response should have been, after hearing, responding, love God, love your neighbor, Jesus says, you're correct. Do this and you'll live. His, res his response should have been, wow. Who can do that? I don't love God with everything that I have. I don't love my neighbor like I love myself. Instead, he wanted to prove that he wasn't needy. He wanted to justify himself. And we all want to justify ourselves, don't we? I'm a good person. I've never done this or that. I'm better than that guy, and I'm better than that person. That's our default mode, isn't it? But the lawyer didn't see his need. Verse 29, he wanted to prove that he was okay. And we think about justifying yourself justifying yourself is the opposite of confessing your sin. We have a confession time where we come before the Lord humble, yielded to the Lord, confessing our sin, agreeing with the Lord about ourselves. That's the opposite of justifying. When you're trying to justify yourself, what you're doing is you're lying to the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm really not that bad. I know you say I'm bad. I'm really not. I'm really better than that. That's what we're doing when we justify ourselves. It's the opposite of confessing. Confessing, we come humbly before the Lord. Everything you say about me is true. So the lawyer is trying to justify himself. God, you don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not that bad. I'm all right. And so we ask, who is my neighbor? He's not right with the Lord because he hasn't confessed his sin. And the religious leaders, they were notorious for having the right answers but not having right conduct. Do what I say, not do what I do. That was their motto. And Jesus says this plain, very plainly in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 through 3. Jesus said to crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, and this is terrible, isn't it? But they do not practice. So the lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus goes along, and he tells them a story, a parable. And anytime we study parables, we always want to know what's the main point, because you can get caught up and sidetracked with any and everything, but what's the main point here? He tells a story about a man who was robbed. He's robbed. He's no doubt beaten and stripped, and he's half dead. 
And there's two passers-by. They were very religious. One was a priest. It just so happens the priest goes by. And now who were the priests? The priests were they're responsible for ministering to the, the people in the temple. And the priests were assisted by the Levites. And that's going to be the second passerby. So you have the priests, you have the Levites. And, and all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. So the priests are ministering in the temple. The Levites give them assistance. And the priests and Levites, they were the religious elite, the Jewish elite. They were, in their culture, they were sufficiently religious. They were morally, outwardly upright and very much respected. But how did they respond to this needy person? They ignored it. They avoided it. They turned a blind eye, a deaf ear to it. They passed by. And Jesus doesn't tell us why. He doesn't tell us what they're thinking when they pass by on the other side of the road, but they no doubt had reasons why they didn't stop and help. A man's mugged, he's half dead. The religious elite, those who represent, supposedly represent the Lord, they pass by. Maybe they were feared they would be mugged as well. Maybe they were in a hurry. They had promised their family they would be home at a certain time. Maybe they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean. Besides, surely someone else will stop and take care of the man. So maybe they went by, they prayed for him as they kept moving by. And there's times where we have legitimate reasons we can't help, we can't give aid to those in need. There, there are instances where that could be true. But maybe this priest and this Levite, maybe they didn't stop to help because they had not experienced the grace of God. So they could not be compassionate. Someone who's not bent towards being gracious and merciful They've not experienced true mercy themselves. We don't know why they didn't help. We can only speculate. But Charles Spurgeon, he says, I never knew a man refuse to help the poor and the needy who failed to give at least one ad admirable excuse. But they go by and they did not help and in our culture, I think about our church culture, many of us maybe were, we could be the same. We could be sufficiently religious and morally upright and we attend church. It's interesting about church. When you ask someone about their relationship with the Lord, that's one of the first things people say. You ask them about, did they know the Lord? And they'll say, yeah, I go to so-and-so church and that's a good thing. I think we should be in church. That's part of our church covenant, right? That we, we don't forsake the assembling together because we need it. Not only do we need it, but we need other people here expressing and, and using their gifts so we can mature. But maybe it could be that we have a lot of people that are involved in church that have never experienced the grace of God. 
And your, your litmus test could be, if you go through 1 John, do you love your neighbor? Do you love others? If you love God, you'll love, you'll love others. The last thing I think we can learn from this text is as Christians, we can fulfill the law of Christ, but it is costly. We already know we can't fulfill the law, right? I mean, love God, love your neighbor. That, the, the standard is too high. But because we're Christians, we have the spirit of God living in us, we can fulfill the law of Christ. You say, well, what is the difference between the law of God, the Mosaic law, and the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is, is Christ's ethical teaching. It exemplifies his character and his conduct. This law of Christ is reproduced in his people by the Holy Spirit. The law of Christ is none other than the, the moral law of God to which the law, the Mosaic law, testifies. Christ is the supreme example. And we follow in his example by loving God and loving others. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if someone is... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we see in the, in the parable, you have the, the priest and the Levite, they, they see the man and they walk by on the other side of the road and they ignore him. But then you see the Samaritan of, of all people. He, he's the one who you would expect not to help. He's not, in their eyes, religious enough. But yet he helped this needy person. The, the foreigner gave care where care was needed. He spent his time. He spent his money. He spent his energy helping this person. And so we ask, who is our neighbor and who's ever in need, right? And so Jesus concludes this parable by telling the lawyer to go be a good neighbor. Be like the Samaritan. And Jesus is telling this religious person, this person who seemed like he hasn't experienced the grace of God, He's telling him to do something he couldn't do because he'd never come to the end of himself. He never cast himself at the Lord's feet and pled for mercy. He had no compassion because he hasn't experienced and received compassion himself from the Lord. And if you want to say, what is the main point of the story? The main point is authentic spiritual life. True Christianity is defined by love for the Lord and love for others. Maybe by way of application, we could, we could say, number one, the lawyer didn't see his need for a savior. He missed the point of the law. It, it was yet to crush him. He had 
the, the law hadn't taken effect where he saw his need. He saw his sin and his depravity and, and his need. And so I'll ask us as a congregation here together, what about us? What about you? What about me? Has the weight of the law crushed our notions that we can measure up to God's standard? Because religious leader here, the, the, the lawyer, he's just going along with the story, testing Jesus. But all along, he's thinking he's loving God and loving neighbor. Has God's unattainable standard, his law, caused you to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? Do you remember the, the story of the, the Pharisee and the publican? It goes right along with this. There, there's a Pharisee who thought himself, thought much of himself. He, he's there at the temple and, and he's there and there's a tax collector is there. And the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like him, Lord. I'm glad I'm not like him. And what he's saying there is, you know, I, I keep the law. I'm a pretty good old boy, unlike this guy. And then in this, telling the story, Jesus shows us the heart of the tax collector. What's the tax collector doing? He's not saying, I got it together. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. He's saying he's beating his breast. He won't even look up to heaven. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, for that tax collector, the law had had its effect. The law, the tutor, had sh shown this tax collector his need for a savior. And the tax collector is responding appropriately to the Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. But the Pharisee is looking down his nose, thinking he's all right. So for us, the question is, has the, the law of God, his standard, caused us to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? Because the lawyer had missed it totally. And it's interesting. We, we see this story is the Good Samaritan, but Jesus, he's telling this story, and, and we've already read in context, he's resolute. He's got his face set towards Jerusalem because what's he going to do? He's going to love the needy. He's going to pay a high price to meet sinners' needs by going to the cross and suffering the wrath of the Father. So he was this, and in, in in in, he's the, the good Samaritan. He's the godly Samaritan. Jesus went to the cross because he loved the Father, wanted to do his will, and to pay our sin debt. So have you yielded to the Lord? Has his law crushed you so much that you're cried out to the Lord in faith and repentance? Secondly, by way of application, the priest and Levite, they were, they were either guilty of self-protection, of apathy, of busyness. We're not sure why they didn't help. Lack of compassion, certainly. But I think about our own lives and our own, in our own culture and our own church and we're really, really busy people and sometimes maybe we're so busy we just don't have time to help. So busy we just don't have time to help. 
We really, we have to, as Christians, we have to make time to love our neighbors. And it's not very convenient. And in our own family life, we've been kind of going through this this semester. My wife, she's always been home, and we did ministry together, of course, overseas, but she's always been home. And, and last year, she taught part-time, and this year, she taught full-time. And so we've been trying to wrestle through with what do we do as a family because we get so busy there's no margin in your lives for loving people. There's no margin for loving our neighbor. So we have to evaluate, man, do we need to make some adjustments here in our lives? Because we don't have a lot of time to, to do the Lord's work, to love the neighbor. And what I would encourage you to do is something we've done for a long time is to set a, a night aside you know, well, how do you do that when you have children? I don't really know. You just have to juggle because you have, you know, baseball, basketball, whatever season. You have to juggle that. But maybe set a night aside where you love people. Maybe you start by just having people in, in, in our church over. Maybe you just have your neighbor over for dinner. You should, love, you should love your neighbor, literally your neighbor, right? So I will say this. If you're a part of our church family and your neighbors have never been into your home, you should consider maybe having them in your home and, and loving them in that way. You say, well, I don't even know my neighbor. Well, you should know your neighbor, right? You live beside them. Maybe set aside a, a night to, that'll help you give you some margin so you can love your neighbor and serve people. And So maybe you could start by inviting people maybe within our church family over, maybe for dinner or, or what, whatnot. And then maybe you could branch out and invite a neighbor close by that maybe they're not church, you're not sure if they're believers, into your home and share that way. But we get really, really busy, but sometimes we don't even know if people have needs or not because we don't even have time. And we have a lot of things. We have this communication software we send out to our church family to kind of keep people updated. But maybe, you know, there's people in your sphere of influence, you're not even sure what their needs are. And 1 John 3, 17 and 18, I mentioned 1 John prior um, to our application point, but, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, that's what John always called, he called, he's had sweet terms of endearment for the church, for believers. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. But, but my point is, sometimes we're just so busy in life, we don't even know, we don't see the needs. It's not that we don't see them, Mallory, and we just don't meet them because we're apathetic or whatever. Sometimes we just don't know what they are. It's a man, I wish I knew I would have done this. But sometimes we don't have margin in our lives. We just get so busy, we can't even do that. So that's something we have to think about. Thirdly, we just need to love the needy. And who are the needy among us? I, I know, I just think about our church. I think about, we got some, we got some people that are home that can't come. They're needy and they need to be loved on and they can't be here. And some of them, you know, are listening right now, watching via Facebook Live. But there's needs there. And if you don't know who those are, we'd love, let me know. I'll send you their names and numbers and they have needs, you know, things that need to be done around the house or just to stop by, have conversation. We need to think about the needy. And fourthly, and lastly, we'll close with this. We talked about Jesus, how he, he answered the lawyer's question with a question. 
What do I do, what do, I do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, well, what does the Bible, what does the law say? What do the scriptures say? And this lawyer answered, love God and love neighbor. And, and Jesus says, you have answered correctly. And that's, you're very orthodox in your thinking. And we talked about, you know, we can be orthodox in our thinking and we want to be biblical. And that's what we say here at Beaver a lot. We want to be biblical. What does the Bible say? We just want to do what the Bible says. If we do what the Bible says, we're going to be a healthy, a good church. But we can focus, and we can focus so much on being orthodox and being biblical that we can get really rigid and critical. We can get real critical where we're not loving, we're not gracious. It's this way or the highway. It's got to be this way. It's got to be done just like this. And if it's not done just like this, and we get real rigid and we start to be very critical and condemning. I remember as a, a seminary student, I was uh, in class and um, I had two semesters, two, two, one semester I had two teachers and they were very, uh, they both loved the Lord, very um, well-known, world-renowned scholars, the Lord using them, knew they loved the Lord, but they had two contrasting styles of teaching and, and shepherding. One was very, very witty, he was a young guy. He had a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, charisma. And, and no doubt, he loved the Lord, um, loved the church, wanted to do the Lord's work. And he was very orthodox. But he was, it was almost so much so that if you didn't think just like him, he was a bit critical. And he would kind of tongue-in-cheek, he would kind of make fun of you. It was like he was a cynic almost. He was real cynical. And so um, I sat under this man and, and being, being taught him the word of God, it was wonderful. But then at the same time, I had another professor who was, he was equally intelligent, probably more so. But his, his attitude was so different. And it's, it's, I think the Lord providentially had me take those classes back to back so I could contrast these different attitudes and how they handled the word of God. Both very orthodox but one was so orthodox, it was so focused on make sure we get it exactly right. It's got to be just like this. You have to see things the way I do or you're wrong. And he would make fun of you in a cynical kind of way. Not overtly, but it was kind of tongue in cheek, you know. But this other man was just, we would talk about different texts and I'm not sure about this text. What, what do you think, Dr. So-and-so? And he would say, yeah, man, this is a difficult text. And he would say, this is the views and this is the way I understand that and this is why. But you know, these other people, they have different ideas and we need to listen to them as well. And he, he was so orthodox and he, he wanted to get it right, but he was so gracious and so merciful. Had those contrasting approaches. The Lord providentially had me there because... My, my personality is more type A toward the first guy. And I can be a little overbearing, a little critical. I can be cynical at times. But man, I so want to be like the second guy. 
just loving and merciful. Yeah, orthodox. It's, it's, it's got to be, you know, there's certain things we, we've got to land on. It's got to be, the gospel's got to be right. The deity of Christ, inerrancy of scripture, all those things we've got to land and we've got to fight for and defend. But there's so many things that we just, man, we struggle with knowing, understanding, and we just need to be gracious. When I think about orthodoxy and orthopraxy, Jesus says, oh, you're correct, you're correct. But yet the guy was correct in his answer, but he wasn't correct in his life. He wasn't loving and compassionate and merciful. People, we've got to be merciful. If we're going to model Christ for the world, we've got to be loving and compassionate and gracious. Yes, we have to stand for what's right. Yes, we have to point out things that are wrong, but we've got to be loving in our efforts. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, they go together. So that's the last thing for us today. We've got to be loving. We have to be loving. Jesus asked the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. So let's, as a church family, let's go and this week and let's do likewise. Let's love our neighbor. Okay? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we acknowledge your goodness in our lives. We're thankful for having your scriptures and we think about those who are all those that are here, those that are watching listening and Father we just ask that your law would take effect and you would crush us that we would not be self-righteous and arrogant we wouldn't be comparing ourselves to other people, but we would see your law, we would see your standard and be hurt, cut to the heart by it. And Father, may we, whether we're a child or a student or an adult, may we yield to you in faith and obedience. You call us, Jesus, His everything he taught could be summarized in repent and believe. And Father, may, if there's lost people here, Father, may they repent today and trust Christ's work on the cross as their own. And Father, for us as a church, may we love our neighbor. Lord, may we look and fight for time to love our neighbor. And may we be servants, Lord, not critical, not self-righteous, not judgmental. Father, may we be Christ-like lovers of people. So much so that we have opportunity week in and week out to share the good news of Jesus. Father, help us to think rightly about you and your word. May we understand it. May we defend it. But Father, may we also be gracious to those who are lost. Father, help us to this week to love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, there's so many in our church who are out. There's a lot that are traveling this weekend. We pray for 
travel mercies for them. Father, for those shut-ins, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, you would comfort them and use us, your church, to minister and help meet their needs. Father, we thank you for the work you're doing in our church and the work you're doing in our hearts. Empower us and encourage us. Protect us as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.